So this past weekend, I was listening to music, as you know, I rarely do. Yes. And something comes across my feed, and I have to tell you, it made me take a pause, and I had to turn the lyrics function on. Please explain. So I'm listening to Harry Styles, and I come across one of his hits, Adore You, which could be written about many people, but I'm actually going to speculate that it was ghostwritten by Kaya about her horse. (laughs) Oh my god. It's about steps high. Please it's about steps high. Exhibit A. Would you believe it? Also part of what I think about this series. You don't have to say you love me. You don't have to say nothing. You don't have to say you're mine. Hi, she disappears. I'd walk through fire for you. Just let me adore you. Like oh it's God. the only thing I'll ever do. Oh my God. How, how them is that? It's like, it's so bleak, but it's them. It's real, but it's like, it's so much for me. Like it's (laughs) like, also, I love like hearing you speak, sing songs. Like that's, that's iconic. I hope you put out an album. You're like Rex Harrison your way through this podcast. And I respect it. Wow. Welcome everyone to American Girls, the podcast. This is the show where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm the artist formerly known as Allison. No, wow. I'm still Allison. Powerful, powerful. Do you think Harry Styles ever like performed spoken word for Olivia Wilde? Yeah, definitely. Oh my God. Really? I've learned through the TikTok, through the youths who are very aware of these things, that he was part of a series of kind of age imbalance relationships and some relationships when he was not 18 with women who were over 18. I didn't know that about him. I didn't know that either. No. So, you know, I was looking back through also, I end up on this side of TikTok there different albums and how quickly they came out. And I think now that people are having more of an understanding of say K-pop and the different ways that artists are pressured to perform and Mm. produce the amount of material that One Direction put out in such a short time really was surprising. It was a shock. And I guess that's why I still stand Zane because First of all, Pillow Talk is a great song and a very good album, but I respect that he's basically like, look, I have anxiety. I can't be out here doing all these appearances and concerts and whatever, because, you know, he basically was like, this is really stressful for me and it's not great for me, so I'm not going to do it. And originally people pushed back on him because he was one of the first to put out a solo album, I believe. I don't have that timeline on lock, but, and I think in comparison to what people were led to expect with 1D and their like prolific output people were like so when's your concert tour when's your next album and he was like no i'm not doing this here's the thing kaya has been through a lot we've been through a lot with her we are on her final book of her canonical series changes for kaya i just want to tell you like if you've written to us and you've said what else can this girl go through 
the the answer Buckle is an up. intense fire. The answer is an intense fire, the near death of her horse. So you can forgive us for wanting to, you know, go to some Harry Styles lyric because she has to save yet another person. She has to save herself in this book. And we've we've deserved that or we've earned that, I should say. Yes, we have. I mean, as you know, I've taken to watching TikToks where people explore architecture of former friendlies and how it's been reappropriated because, I mean, these are the kind of safe spaces I need at this time because Kaya is not that place. And the peek into the past, in case you're curious on this book, is even more bleak than the contents. This is one of the shortest books that we've read in a while of these different series and the peak into the past, I would say is the longest that we've ever read of an American girl book. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. And it kind of offers what you might call a uh, Billy Joel. We'd insert the fire. Like here's the history of the Nez Perce from Kaya's lifetime to the present in ways that are interesting that we'll get into, but it's pretty bleak, pretty rough. We've had to retreat to, you know, more lighthearted pop culture ways of dealing with it, I guess. Like, Allison, do you have anything to recommend for people who might need something to balance this content out? So I've been watching The Bachelor the way that someone might watch a screensaver of just waves coming and going. I think in the past we have urged more talking on dates and I take that back. I I am formally retracting that. I do miss the hot tubs and the helicopters. That would actually make for a great thesis of hot tubs and helicopters on not speaking in the bachelor universe. There is a lot of uh, trauma bonding and trauma dumping that's happening on this season. Just like this series. I don't like trauma bonding. Oh, I, I thought you said just like. No, and I said, this no, 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 just yes. like. <laughs> no, but I said it is just, yes, it's like, just like a Kaya yeah. series. It is. Kaya could use a Katie. Katie is the current bachelorette in her life. There would be a lot of eye locking, a lot of intense listening. But I am finding that it is both so immediately intimate and yet still so superficial in other ways. It's like a cast of characters in a therapy group. It is. And it was actually, there was this uh, group date set up where everyone had blindingly bright lights on them as they sat in a circle that looked like a support group that was staged and lit for a movie filming, which isn't essentially what was happening. And that kind of forced intimacy is really off-putting. And there's a recent article in New Yorker magazine or New York magazine about Rachel and her experience as the first black bachelor in which she reveals a lot of behind the scenes elements of the show, in which case, including that producers would kind of befriend you and then say like, well, how did you feel about this thing that happened? And then kind of pull you to the side into a testimonial room and get you to reveal your intimate feelings about things. And then ultimately edit those in ways that maybe weren't consistent with the context in which they originally offered and knowing that and watching the scene of the group therapy scene in which people are revealing extremely intimate um, and traumatic details of their lives it's just it rings so false it it provokes the opposite feeling than they hope to intend of like hoping to make you care about these people instead you do both care about some of these people and the very and Katie especially the horrific things that she disclosed that happened to her but also it makes you angry at the producers for putting for manipulating and manufacturing this false moment 
Especially when this has been done repeatedly in previous seasons, there was kind of a formative moment during Colton's season where a certain disclosure was made and now it does seem to be part of the package. And I think people speaking out about their experiences and serving as advocates is really important. Her social media has been filled with links to organizations such as RAIN, right, to get people who yeah. do need support and advocacy. At the same time, I think this is a show that is absolutely struggling with what it is because the way that these people are brought out is so is done in a way that's almost completely incoherent. You haven't attached to anyone yet to understand, which is why when I said it's like a screensaver, it's like the world's worst montage of who is this person? How am I supposed to connect with them? And we're supposed to have watched them play farcical games or, you know, be out in a hot tub first so we have some kind of name recognition we haven't had that yet no and it's just it's very bizarre too just in terms of like how they're hoping to suggest that this is how nor air quotes normal relationships succeed or should move forward and that's just absolutely not the case i'm not someone who reads a lot of self-help but i did just read a book about setting boundaries in different contexts and one of the things it says it's a red flag in terms of you know connecting with anyone in any context is if they overshare too quickly, that's a sign of someone who doesn't have emotional boundaries. And basically the show is supporting and actively suggesting that to be successful with Katie and on the show, that's exactly what's expected of you. So it's really actively encouraging a lot of bad behavior. And, you know, there's one guy that when he kisses Katie, I just have to scream and I close my eyes and I'm like, please not during pride month. Please don't make me see this. At least you're closing your eyes. Not everyone is. (laughs) If I may, there is a scene in this Kaya book where a young person pulls at her hair. And we are meant to believe that this is, I think, that there's a hint that it's because he likes her. Yes. And if I may, this book was written in the year of our deity, 2002. I think that is such a bizarre moment in the context of these books because we know that by 2002, the larger company that this is a part of has been putting out books for decades that teach young people appropriate ways to communicate with members of the opposite sex or just with other people, period. And then we cut to an early chapter of this Kaya book and a boy pulls on her braid to suggest that he likes her. We'll have to get into that scene because that actually drove me in that whole, we will get into that. I have a lot to say about that, but before we get into the book, I know we also just wanted to acknowledge something on a more serious note that happened this week that we're recording about someone about whom we care deeply on this show. We've talked about her and been following what's going on with her. And that's of course, Britney Spears. So if you can't handle the bandwidth of this conversation, I'd suggest you skip ahead a minute or two, totally understandably, because what we've learned this week is actually really sad and upsetting about what she's been living with, living through for the past 13 years, which we all suspected, but we got her own words this week in court. I think part of what was so revealing about this week was we heard Britney Spears in her own voice, and I think we heard her literally at a completely different register than what we've heard on her videos, which were probably forced, or the different times where she had an opportunity to speak. 
And people have been absolutely right to point out that there have been two fairly major stories this week, one of which was the Secretary of the Department of the Interior, Deb Howland, said that there would be a full formal investigation into government-run or government-sponsored boarding schools for Indigenous people, and that there is an ongoing crisis of marginalized peoples not having full control over their reproductive rights. Mm -hmm. And then you have one of the richest women in the country saying that she doesn't have control over her own IUD. And I think part of what's important about this moment is listening to people who have been working on this for a long time who are saying she represents a much larger community of people who are disabled or who have been marginalized by others who don't get millions of people listening to their testimony. And I think part of what's happening right now is we're looking back at those other years of her career and she's saying, no, I actually just really couldn't speak for myself. Yeah, it's absolutely devastating. And as we we've all probably guessed that she's been subject to a lot of control, but to hear in her own words that she's been forced to keep an IUD in her body, that she was forced to take lithium without her consent at different times that put her in a state where she felt like maybe she couldn't consent to the things that were being asked of her, including going on tour when she didn't want to and doing and working every day, seven days a week. Um, you know, at her father's uh, request. And, you know, to hear all of this, it does absolutely, it's impossible not to connect it to these other larger histories of both marginalized people in case thinking about the boarding school histories, but also the history of mental illness and disability and thinking about long-term movements like mental hygiene that essentially at the early 20th century were built on the premise that people could prevent or improve society by, you know, forcing sterilization and birth control on people, um, through a eugenics lens, it was absolutely inappropriate and wrong. And the fact that, and some people like to think we've let go of that in our world, but to hear literally, as you say, one of the richest women in our country reveal that she's been subjected to this, it's absolutely stunning and just awful. Yeah. Just terrible. And I'm not even going to get into this, but Justin Timberlake put out a statement and it's like, nobody asked, absolutely nobody asked. No one asked, and I'd like to believe in, you know, the better angels of people's nature that hopefully there's some donations going out to organizations that, you know, empower people to make these decisions for themselves. That's the hope. That is the hope. That is probably what I'll be doing this week, just because, you know, when you hear news like this, when people who are in power are made to feel powerless and disempowered in their own lives, it sort of makes me feel as someone of much less, you know, privilege in some ways, like, well, what does that mean about the rest of us? But I think that should inspire us to try to, you know, actively dig into these movements that are hoping that have been working on these issues for a very long time and trying to improve rights for everybody. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's all we can say. I'm thinking about her. I'm thinking about everyone who doesn't have a high powered attorney or $60 million state to help her fund her legal fight to deal with a lot of these issues because it's absolutely devastating, but you know, Allison as devastating as that's been, I don't know if you can handle any more, but are you willing to get into changes for Kaya? I'm thrilled to get into changes for Kaya. Okay. Let's do this. Hey listeners, so if you've been with us for a while, or even if this is your first episode, you know that not everything from your childhood exactly translates to something you want to keep in your adulthood. So today we're here to talk about one of those foods that maybe you're not sure how to fit into your adult life. 
Yes, I am talking about a big heaping bowl of cereal. When I was younger, I loved to get cozy on the couch first thing on a Saturday morning and eat many, many bowls of sweet, sugary cereal. Now, something that I love to eat is Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net gram carbs in each serving. A serving is about 140 calories, and it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. You can build your own box with flavors such as cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon. You can also mix and match. If this sounds like something that you want to get into your Saturday morning repertoire, or if you're like me and it makes a great meal during the week, go to magicspoon.com slash American Girls Pod to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code American Girls Pod and you'll get $5 off your order. Remember, you can get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash American Girls Pod and use that code to save $5. So a famous musician once sang that he was born in a crossfire hurricane. Oh boy. Yes. In this book, we have Kaya once again being in a wildfire. <laughs> we have, this time it's literal. So let's give you the very brief breakdown We learn in book six, per our publisher, Speaking Rain has returned. As Kaya joins a hunting party traveling into the mountains, she's hopeful that she'll find her beloved horse steps high, too. But if Speaking Rain is troubled, she smells the smoke of mountains fires. As Kaya searches for steps high, she must face a fear greater than any she's ever known. If we had a nickel for every time Kaya had to face her greatest fear or adversity, we would have six nickels for the six books of this series. That's right. That's right. I don't remember a series that we've read so far that has so firmly leaned into challenges. So I think we had a almost identical set of challenges in certain ways in the Kirsten books, but we also had so many heartwarming moments that were contrived to bring each book up to a high note. And I think part of what we find yet again with Kaya is we start from a place of sorrow, we go through a challenge, and then there's kind of these lingering self-doubts that are reinforced by people around her. And I, I don't know that Kirsten had that. I don't think she did. And, but there is also echoes of Josefina with like the dad stuff where the dad both enforces her insecurities, but also like they have some bonding moment towards the end of the series as well. Although this one is sort of a strange interaction between the two of them. Where should we even begin, Allison? I think we should begin at the beginning. I think I'd like to tilt us also to the fact that other changes books tend to to different degrees of subtlety land on what's coming next for the United States. And this book doesn't exactly fit in that frame. It does kind of end very tightly on Kaya and her community. When we think about the Felicity books, like we understand that the American Revolution is happening. When we finish the Addie books, we understand that Reconstruction is coming and the Civil War has ended. Similarly, with Molly, we have this sense that this quote-unquote post-war period is coming. And I think that when these books align with wars, the authors have a really 
knack, they have a knack to kind of tightly tie up those loose ends. These more amorphous stories like a Samantha or a Kirsten, there's kind of vague vibes of things changing for women, but we're not always sure what. This book really leaves us out in the woods, no pun intended. It does leave us out in the woods. And I also think the ending is unsatisfying in the same way that Molly's was, where it sets you up for a moment of, in Molly's case, reunion with her dad, but we don't get to see it. And with this book, you're set up for like what I'll call the wedding of the century of Brown Deer and Kutchik who are finally getting married. And what we're left with is an image of, which is still powerful, of Kaya putting the saddle that she inherited from Swan Circling onto Steps High and going out with Tatlo to meet and greet her um, Kutchik's family coming in for this ceremony. And, you know, so like that's powerful that she's assumed like swan circling saddle and like she, you can assume that she's going to start using her name probably in the future, near future and doing her vision quest soon. But it's not the same feeling of like, there's no moment of like, wow, like reunion or celebration. It's just Kaya, like kind of walking into an unknown future without us. And it's a weird ending for me. I mean, maybe it works, but... This whole narrative really mirrors in some ways what happens with a fire, right? You might be able to smell before it starts, and we'll actually talk about how that fits into the story, but you might have indications that a fire is coming towards you or that a fire is about to begin. The first chapter is called Smoke on the Wind. The second chapter is The Rogue Stallion's Herd. Then chapter three, Trapped by Fire and Gifts. So we have this like actual building towards a physical fire that endangers Kaya's life, her father's life, her whole community in some ways, as well as her beloved horse. And as is typical of this series, the second we get a happy reunion, there's peril, right? So in the previous book, she's finally reunited with her sister and there's this crisis because she may not actually stay. We finally get to have steps high back. Maybe we're going to have some closure they almost die in a fire. Yeah. There's not a lot of feel good or like moments when you can sort of rest on your laurels in these books. It makes you kind of nostalgic for the moment when Molly was gifted a puppy that she never took care of or we saw ever again. Like remember those days? I mean, we opened this book with um, Kaya reunited with speaking rain and they're playing dolls together. So you get that obligatory scene again of an American girl playing with a doll, although it's not the doll that necessarily, you're going to buy in the catalog, but you get that scene that normalizes that kind of play. And you're like, wow, like Kai is actually a child and her sister's back. And, you know, it seems like very innocent, but then quickly becomes something else. And that's when I want to get into the scene of what happens next, which is that her uncle's return from a hunting party with a man who was rejected by Brown Deer as a potential partner. Like she wanted to be with cut cheek, this man, I forget his name. He came and danced next to her and she didn't put her stick on him or something to select that she was interested. She was interested in cut cheek. This is the man who then pulls Kaya's hair. 
Yeah, this is page seven. We get jumps back. This is that person's name. And we get jumps back pulling on her braid. And we also learn yet again, I thought this was interesting because I thought to some degree we were past this. The book opens, as you say, with another scene of kind of domestic work and play. And we learn that even after what's happened in the previous book, Kaya is kept from certain activities because, quote, her sad feelings would spoil the roots and berries. And it's interesting because I found portions of these books hard to track along a timeline, whereas Mm. in other books, you know, Molly being kind of glaring, D-Day just happened, right? (laughs) But obviously we're moving in a different kind of cycle and season, but I very much felt like certain things that happened in this book had already happened, right? Like there seems to still be confusion over Brown Deer's courting choices. Kaya is still sad, which is understandable, but I thought in the previous book we had kind of moved along an arc where she was processing that and then able to really rejoin the workforce. Yeah, I was really confused by that too, because it also seems unclear that what the sign of someone being past their grief or being able to participate in work without spoiling the berries or the potential output, what is the marker of that other than someone's own testimony, which is what ends up happening in this book. Kaya basically says like, I think I'm past it or like I'm at a place where I can do this again and they believe her instantly. But it's like, yeah, I thought she kind of had that. That was the whole point of the Tatlo plot line, but I guess not. No, I guess not. And I was thinking of how so many things that happen in this book truly are exactly like the Kirsten books, right? Mm -hmm. We have incidents with wild animals. We have incidents with fire. We also have these moments where, in Kirsten's case, it was missing her friend, Marta. In the context of these books, we have this sense that we think that Kaya has processed some of this and then it kind of hits her again. Or a lot of this book is about her self doubt of living up to her namesake. And you know what, as you say it that way, that does seem actually true to how grief works. Like it's definitely not a linear process where, you know, you start off really, really grieving and then suddenly like it slowly dissipates down to nothing. It's like something can hit you and it's like super fresh as if it just happened. And then you can kind of get ways of dealing with it and adjust, but it's kind of, it ebbs and flows, or at least that's how it's been for me. So that does track, but Yeah. I think the thing that's sort of a downer that was disappointing to me is like her self-doubt is still so strong. Yes. And think of what she's been through. She has been kidnapped, enslaved, escaped, met people from other tribes and become friends with them. She has now survived a fire. She has survived several near drowning incidents. Yes. So then when jumps back is with her and her uncle question mark shows up and all we're told about him is he has a short temper and now fair Tatlo does jump at his, like attacks him at his, I think his neck and his knee jerk reaction is to kick Tatlo away. And instead of Kaya, Kaya doesn't, he has like a temper tantrum and Kaya's like, don't let this spoil your homecoming. And then jumps back is like, wow, I really admire the way that you handled that. Like, wow. And you're like, stop being creepy. She's nine years old. That was my response. But also it's like, if I was Kaya, I'd be like, check me out at my personal URL. You tried it.com. Like you don't even know what I've been through in the past five books to this guy with the short temper, uncle, whoever I would have been like, yeah, my dog jumped on you. Chill out. I'm trying to get a bead from you for Brown Deer's wedding outfit, period. 
Like, let's go back to the matter at hand here. And yet again, there are so many moments in this book that really are kind of recycled content. We once again have a moment where a bead is really used to stand in for the kind of coming fears or anticipation about what trading with other people and specifically the people they call the pale faces will bring. And if we remember, this exactly aligns with her grandmother's vision. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, so that was an interesting callback, but then what's kind of weird about it is it doesn't go anywhere. Like we, exactly. We never hear at the end of the book. And this is where part of my disappointment with the ending. I wanted to go to that wedding celebration. Same. Same. I wanted to know if the red bead is on her outfit. We never find that out. I don't want to say this, but I kind of feel like my sad feelings might spoil the roots and berries. Oh my God. Wow. So to your point, there is this arrival or this kind of reunion, right, with some people coming back. But we also have this moment that I felt was interesting from a kind of meta narrative perspective, which is Kaya is kind of doing that thing that I can say I absolutely did, which is she's asking an older sibling just endless questions. And she's asking her older sister what she thinks is going to happen. And there's this moment in the narrative where they're just Shaw is describing Kaya and says she thought that because her sister was blind, her sense of smell was especially sharp. And what's strange is in earlier books, that's presented as fact. So are you pulling back on this with us, Janet, or did they get feedback so they felt like they had to throw that in? Did Janet watch a Lifetime movie in the interim between writing contents of book one, where I think that's revealed in book six, and then she was like, huh... Okay, I'll I'll maybe leave this as somewhat ambiguous in case it turns out I'm wrong about this. And in response, her sister sort of also does that thing you sometimes have to do when you're tired of answering questions and says, I don't know. Right. Right. She's she's more or less noncommittal. And then there is a very intense fire. I think my hero, once again, is the grandmother because she has all of these wisdom drops that she puts in. We learn from her that fire is a great gift, but it has dangers too. As a candle lover, I hear that. I need to hear that. You need to be pulled back from. You also like to recreationally just light matches. So Yes, Yes, I do. You know, that's something to just be aware about. Like, you know, that's fine, but you know, got to have some good fire safety practices, I guess. I also love that grandma has like eyes everywhere. Like when the Tatlo attacks the uncle who I dislike, um, Kaya comes over and is like, I have a question. And she's like, is it about how to control your dog? Like, yeah, I saw that. She also reminds us, quote, it's easy to be kind to a pleasant person, but it takes strength to be kind to an angry one, which is like, so all of us 15, 16 months into COVID. I think that's all of us, but I actually, I'm really happy you read that quotation because I also think that that, that's a weird lesson to have in this book because it, she doesn't actually qualify that you actually aren't obligated to be kind to everyone all the time. And I think that's an important thing, especially for young girls to appreciate. It's not your job to make everyone else feel okay all the time. And actually, if someone is not being kind to you or disrespectful or whatever, you don't always have to respond and be the bigger person. Like, yes, that is sometimes the path of least resistance, but I don't know. I just, I, I bumped against that when I read it. Do you think that's also partially a projection of this idea? I think a lot of people have that 
a wrong idea that some indigenous communities were kind of these passive recipients of colonialism, right? That th- that yeah. they're sitting around kind of saying these types of truisms as opposed to an elder in the community strategizing. Like, to me, that seems like the kind of thinking that would also be really convenient to be exploited by a missionary or a colonizer. Yeah, and it fits with the history that they offer and peek into the past, especially the early history of um, the indigenous groups who meet Lois and Clark and help them. I mean, they're, he's presented as a completely passive recipient to this first onslaught of colonialism to this area. And, you know, that struck me as strange too, but I think you're right in linking those two, like in linking those two things, it kind of makes sense that they would have that message in the book because it kind of explains things. So I think part of the challenge, right, is we have spent, you know, other book six episodes speculating, well, how how would Felicity fare through the American Revolution, right? How would these people make it through other events? And we can talk in detail about the way that how Kaya might have fared through the next 30 to 50 or so years is presented. But I think part of what is actually compelling is to imagine that she does live up to the namesake, that she does become rather like swan circling. And I think there's an alternative history here that I would love to see written from an indigenous perspective, which is she changes the course of history by not just being kind or generous to people who are cruel to her. And I think that would make for a very different story. I think in some cultural productions, people are are content to present kids as rebellious to a point, but when they're rebellious to the point of disruption or upending the apple cart, then it becomes a source of danger and it has to be righted in a way. And the child has to sort of like choose compliance on their own as like a modeling behavior. And I kind of wish they had, you know, bucked against that with Kaya's book and made her this like, you know, really hardcore rebel who's kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to take this and is a leader both within her tribe in the same way that Swan Circling, I think, was like she didn't accept the confines of like whatever gender roles were in, you know, maybe placed on her life. And yeah, I don't know. I kind of hope they had projected that sense, too, as opposed to also we'll get into this, but what they imagined Kaya's response would be to the past 300 years of Nez Perce history or interactions with the United States in particular. I also imagine a kind of symmetry between Kaya's response to seeing the bead, which is kind of this moment of wonder, which I, mm. I think is not out of place, but I do feel a lot of echoes of the moment when Josefina first has her kind of real contact with outsiders and American people, like people from the United States, and she has this moment of wonder at what they have to offer and this kind of flag raising that she participates in. And I do kind of wonder what this would feel like if Kaya looked at that bead and was nonplussed, right? Or I would love that. Or or had a completely and I'm not saying that she has to, but had a completely different reaction. There's also, I mean, the cover of my book of changes for Kaya, the way that she's positioned on the horse with this fire behind her. It is almost exactly in terms of like the face and the composition on the horse, the same as Felicity's moment where she Mm. liberates Penny. And 
what happens in that book is we know what's coming, right? We know what happens in 1765, um, sorry, 1775. And in this story, we're now roughly 1765. I think there's something strange about Kaya's community still seeming sort of ignorant of what's coming. And, and I don't mean that that is my impression. I think the point of view that it's written from is as if they don't have any sense of what's to come when I think that's not true. I totally agree with that. And I actually thought it was really strange that the story... So I think it would to go back to your just previous point, I would have liked it if Kaya responded to the beat and was nonplussed and was also like, actually, I prefer my grandma's shells because there's this beautiful story that invests this like wonderful meaning in the shells. Because I think there's so much in this book about material objects only have the meaning invested in them. And so that would have been actually like a really beautiful moment. But to that point, the red bead has no story with it except of how the man obtained it. And it's convenient in a way that every influence in this book or intervention from white culture comes at like three steps remove of like someone else traded with someone else who traded with a white person for this bead. And I don't think that that's a realistic accounting of the network or the remove at which Kaya would have been from white people at this period. So I think that's a weird choice. Yeah, and you're reminding me how much of what we learn about Kaya's people comes through her grandmother's stories and how there is something kind of interesting in her family dynamic, which is her mother almost always being absent. Mm -hmm. We have this kind of triangulation where Kaya's missteps are kind of gently corrected by her grandmother or her grandmother reminds her of how she is supposed to behave. And then very much like Kirsten and her father, when Kaya really steps in it, she ends up in kind of a life or death situation with her father almost every single book. Yeah, that's a good point. And <laughs> I, I mean, was kind of saying to you off air, that's why the structure of this book doesn't make sense to me in terms of the plot, because I think the lesson that she was supposed to learn or we're supposed to think she was supposed to learn across these books is that she should put her own needs in the back seat and she should put the needs of the tribe first and not act impulsively on her own impulses. So when she goes off in book one to see about steps high and leaves the twins alone, that was a bad move. And she was supposed to learn from that. But in the last book, the way the events roll out, it's like, here's how I think it should have been structured. I think we should have opened with the fire. Because in the fire, what she actually does is go to her dad and say, can you help me look for steps high? Because she hears that there's nest purse horses in the area. And he's like, yep, let's, let me take Raven. Let's go do this. And he, they go off into this area that long story short, we've been introduced to the idea that there's wildfires in the area. They get caught in low ground in a wildfire zone. And it's very scary to read how the dad leads them out of it. And at the last minute, Steps high, like loses track with the group because they have a foal that is wandered away. So Kaya goes off her horse to save steps high and the, and the foal. And then she loses her, the remaining path, safe path out of the fire and can't see her dad or Raven. And she hears a whistle and she follows the whistle out of the fire and she thinks it's her dad and it wasn't her dad. And we're left to believe it's the stick people. But that moment actually is not her putting the needs of the tribe over her own. Like it started from a very personal impulse, a motivation. So I would have opened with that and I would have closed with the scene of the hunt where she hears 
like magpies and sees horses, or she could have had something that she personally wanted, but you see her make the choice to instead stay with the women who are pushing the elk towards the hunters for the good of the tribe. Like that to me would have made sense as an arc because you see her choosing to be to like privilege community needs over her own, which is, I think, what we were supposed to get out of this question mark. But this honestly, so if you look at the six books across a spread, book one is Kaya on Steps High, book six is Kaya on Steps High. And this is not dissimilar from ultimately what we distill out of Felicity's books, which is book one, got to get my horse, book six, got my horse. Yeah. So, and something that is different is Kaya frames her reunion with Steps High as Steps High choosing to be with her. She says, you've chosen to be my horse again. Um, didn't Steps High choose? Do you think Steps High chose? Well, I think it just speaks to a very different relationship that Kaya has been socialized to have with animals. Because over and over in this book, we learn that there are spoken and unspoken agreements that people and animals need to have to be in symbiosis. We learned this with the salmon, with dogs, with wolves. and. There's this kind of spiritual sense that she is saved by the stick people, but also this fact that her just wanting this horse was not enough. The horse wanted had to want to be with her and to have her foal with her as well. Yeah, and there is that scene right before the fire reaches them or they're aware of it when Raven says they just see steps high across the river and she's so excited and Raven's like, whistle for your horse like they will know you and like they'll come and that doesn't but you see we like or it's described that step size ears perk up like and you get it you're supposed to get a sense of like oh like they recognize kaya's whistle so that connection is there and in that moment i did think this is very different from felicity's books because i have no sense of like penny's personhood like that (laughs) horse did not have a personality it was like this horse is here and like felicity's projecting a lot of stuff on this horse and wants to save it but i think steps high like feels like a, a true character in this book Yes. And I think like, I am confident that things I hope will get better for Kaya. We learn that she treats herself. She has burns and she treats herself. So she's kind of on that trajectory. I hope that Kaya doesn't get into like a weird essential oils place, but I don't think that she would. I don't think Kaya would ever be like, Hey girl, I know it's been a while since we talked, but I want to talk about this life changing tea. No, that would never be Kaya. Her grandma wouldn't allow it. Her grandma Grandma would shut that right down. She's like, excuse me, I see you trying to start an MLN here. That's not going to happen. Well, and there's a line that intrigues me on um, almost the last page where Kaya is kind of projecting onto Speaking Rain, who never seemed super concerned about fire in the first place. She kind of runs back to her and she says, you were right to be troubled about fires. Speaking Rain drew in a sharp breath. What happened? Like Speaking Rain (laughs) is like on her own track now. Speaking Rain is like, I'm humoring you, but this needs to stop like almost immediately because I have other stuff going on. Yeah. It's interesting too, to see, imagine what kind of role Kaya is going to take on as more of an adult woman, because you also get this generational detail where an older woman has to retire from berry picking. So they need to pick someone else to lead them. And so suddenly everyone's like, Kaya, like 
your thoughts when she says that she has now the emotional bandwidth to take part in this work. She literally is like, okay, I can help pick berries again. They're like, great, let's go right now. And they're like, by the way, like who should take this place? And she's like, I think my mom, because she has good judgment and whatever, but it's like, I'm sorry, suddenly she's gone from like zero to hero in terms of this work. Well, there's also a lot happening in the community. So we don't get as much of it as maybe we would have liked, but we do know that the wedding is happening, right? Like certain things are kind of moving ahead. I do feel kind of like we were guarded once again, where, we desperately wanted to be fully in guarding Cornelia's wedding and they denied us. I was so mad at this. Like, I was like, you guys did this again. Like, I'm sorry. Why can't, it's not like there's a, a, a financial constraint. We're using words here, folks. Like just invite us to your narrative. Okay. Like just paint us a picture. I have hung in here through six books. We have been through it. Take us to a party and on a high. And instead, it's like we get Kaya basically riding out to the start of what we might consider a cel- like a long-term celebration, and we don't get to go. It's like, I'm sorry, maybe you didn't want us to go to Uncle Guard's wedding because you knew you couldn't even write anything with a straight face, pun intended, about that. So maybe they were like, you know what? We can't do this to kids. Like It's wrong to lie to kids, so we're not going to present a fake straight wedding when one of the participants can't sincerely enter into that union. But that's not what was going on here. Okay. No. And as an indication of kind of certain episodes, right, we have to tap into different plot lines to try to learn more, right? So that we'll, you know, have a a different perspective. I was reading interviews with Nez Perce firefighters to bring material to this show. Oh boy. Yes. No, it was super interesting, but you know, so many of these books, they were so trauma focused, right? Or they were so intent on kind of putting her into crisis. I did learn through these different interviews that as is not surprising, you know, the different kind of colonial perspectives on land management that have dominated the millions of acres that would have um, been part of the Nez Perce culture and land now there's this sort of crisis on how to properly manage fire because people have set fires on purpose for thousands of years as part of land management. And now we're in this very weird position where people have to speak to outside authorities on how to manage their own land. And there's conflicts, right, between different uh, cultural beliefs. But part of what I learned is that knowing how to start a fire and knowing how to manage fire is actually considered integral to Nez Perce belief today. Interesting. I read this quote, uh, fire needs to be there for Nez Perce. I think it's a sad day when you have to heat up your rocks for a sweat lodge with propane because that wouldn't really be Nez Perce. So that was someone who actually works in fire speaking to an interviewer. Um, And this person was saying that like when people kind of are forced away or taken out of the culture, they lose that connection to fire. And this is where I wonder, you know, how much of these books goes from really good concept put forward by a Nez Perce tribal member and then Janet being like, I'll write a fire. (laughs) Yeah, I do wonder about that. And because you get sort of ritualistic as you're describing in, you know, contemporary accounts of the value of fire within the culture, you do get those references in the book where you see brown deer in particular, like expertly using fired stones to boil water within the cooking baskets and knowing how to do so in a way where you don't burn the basket and whatnot. 
And in more contemporary YA books like The Firekeeper's Daughter, which is grounded in a different tribal tradition, but nonetheless, you understand that fire is central to the ritual of celebrating someone's life and ushering them to the next, um, to their next life or the next world. So rich fire has all these like very strong rituals that we don't, it's weird that she doesn't want to just sit with those traditions. And instead is like, I'm creating a natural disaster. Well, if you recall, we had a raccoon who was responsible and in Kirsten's cabin fire slash Kirsten. What was interesting in these interviews was also someone saying, um, quote, the only ones with more experience, meaning than the Nez Perce, are the animals. And that mm. also kind of puts, you know, the central plot of this book in a very different perspective because we have a sense that Kaya has to work with Steps High to kind of save all of their lives. And I wonder, we're given kind of the stick people as the intervention that ultimately saves them. But I wonder if there would be a different interpretation by some that really it could be steps high who saves them. That's interesting. Hmm. I think that's definitely a possibility. Listen, I was all over the map because, you know, Kaya, she brings us to a different place and we can't just focus on her sadness, not just for the sake of the berries, but each book just hits us with this fresh new wave of crises and we have to go in with her. We do. You kind of have to like follow her lead, so to speak, and just try to make sense of what's happening as you're in it, because otherwise none of it makes a lot of sense to me. A lot of the choices. No. And I think something I did actually really like about this book is we have a sense of the world of the Nez Perce. I did kind of like that it felt big. And I think something that really is so different from every book we've read before, I felt sometimes like I could go to the fake town Molly was from and know half the people. They're almost claustrophobic in a way. Like there's like nine people in everybody's town. You know, Felicity knew everybody. At the time that Kaya was living, the Nez Perce people used and... I don't want to say owned because that's not the right word, but they had over 13 million acres of land. Um, that number today is only in the hundreds of thousands that are recognized. Um, but Kaya really is from like a big world that would stretch across what we would think of today as Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. Which kind of leads you to imagine or wonder when she's confronted with the eventual United States is nationalism something as a kind of an abstract thought experiment that she can just easily understand and think herself into because she's part of her own kind of larger group of which most of it she has to kind of imagine because they're not sharing the same physical proximate space or is it like even a like a a different kind of intellectual challenge because it's just so foreign i don't know But in a way, it's like, as you're describing, because even in the world of the book or like the structure of the tribe that we're getting, there's a passing reference when she's nominating her mom to be the new like female leader of the collection of berries and roots and so on, that the, she can be a choice, even though she's not of the tribe, the chief's family, because the chief himself is not the son of the previous chief. He was just chosen because he's the most courageous. So there are all all these people, even in the periphery of the space that she's sharing that we never really meet or know. Do you think that was a comment on George Bush's leadership? (laughs) I mean, what isn't at this point? I don't know. So I think we should definitely talk about a peek into the past because it's truly about a fifth of this book. It's a ride. I'll say that. I want to find... 
one of the lines that really threw me here. First of all, it starts with kind of an accounting of what happens to the Nez Perce after the timeline of this book. But it leads to modern day or, you know, 2002 descriptions of the status of the Nez Perce people. And there's this sense that like Kaya would have been really cool with everything that was going on that like is just kind of a weird vibe where it's like, yeah, um, you know, Kaya would have loved that there are visitors from all over the world that come to the Nez Perce National Historical Park in Idaho. And you, I don't know, there's just like, it's a weird energy. You know what I mean? Yeah, so if you follow along, this is page 69, and we learn, quote, if Kaya lived among the Nez Perce people today, she'd be happy to see that many of them still live on the same land she called home. She'd be glad to hear her language being spoken, smell salmon roasting on the fire, taste fresh huckleberries, and step inside a long house. When a magpie alighted on a tree branch, she'd laugh quietly to herself. I don't buy that for a millisecond. If we're supposed to believe that her arc is becoming more like swan circling, this, this woman, let's imagine that she is a grown woman, thinking about how quickly she's already taken on some of swan circling's leadership and her healing abilities. I don't think Kaya is like, giggling by herself and popping no. berries in her mouth. When I read that line, I flashed back to our conversation with Leah about Anne Frank's diary. And she said something that really stuck with me on that episode. That's like, people often quote Anne Frank's diary where she talks about like, I still believe in hope and basically said something like, I don't think when she was in the concentration camp, she might've still felt that way, but obviously we don't have her reflections from that time in her life. And I kind of feel a similar energy with what is going on in this passage, which is like Kaya is being described as someone who's like, but I still believe in hope. And it sort of erases any kind of problematic feelings adult or child Kaya might've had about the purposeful attempted destruction of her people. This whole section also starts in a really strange way. I mentioned that fire really serves as a central metaphor for the end of this. In the same way, Kaya knew to be careful when she smelled smoke. Okay, like she kind of didn't. That's like part of our issue. That's part of it, yes. Many Nez Perce people had visions that warned them to be careful of the people with pale faces who were beginning to come to their homeland. I think what this does is it takes like an actual concerted effort by people who did actually have bad intentions and intentions to take over other people's homeland and it compares it to a natural disaster when there was actually nothing natural there is like very much a manifest destiny vibe to this it's like smoke on the wind who who could have known and it's like actually the people who planned this as a takeover yeah grandma knew I mean, but also in the next paragraph, when we get the conversation about Lewis and Clark, it says, quote, chief twisted hair befriended these travelers, drew maps that showed how the rivers could take them to the sea and agreed to care for their horses over the winter. And there's no conversation really about how, like, it sort of just presents as like we were saying in the book, it makes sense how you would present Native Americans as like, you should be kind to people who are unkind to you. And in furthering this caricature, that's not real about like, well, that was just their natural response. Like, how do we like the presentation of Chief Twisted Hair's response to Lewis and Clark is so one note and misleading. 
it's, as you're saying, it furthers this kind of manifest destiny reading of this entire section. So I'm going to recommend on archives.gov, there are some primary sources that you can read so you can get the firsthand impressions from different sides. But to pair that with a book that came out just a few years ago, which is called um, the Salish People and the Lewis and Clark Expedition. It is a first-person perspective from the Salish responding to Lewis and Clark. So not assumptions about the Salish or the Nez Perce from colonizers, but actually their impressions of Lewis and Clark. Yeah, I think that would be a really important read. I want to check that out myself. It's just, you know, I forget what the name of that book is that calls it like the new world, essentially like that indigenous people seeing the West or Europe that's the new world to them. And yet every, the way that the survey and everything is taught is as if the new world is, you know, North America from the Europe. It keeps us from seeing things. It keeps us seeing things purely from a European perspective. And I think things that ask us to flip that is a really healthy starting place. We also get Henry and Eliza Spaulding entering the chat, and if you recall way back a few episodes, we talked about how the Spaulding Collection, which was missionaries uh, taking a lot of Nez Perce belongings, how that is in the process of being renamed, and that entire archival collection is being rethought and in some cases repatriated. Um, we learn here kind of in passing something that I think is important, because I'm seeing a lot of people online who maybe didn't learn about boarding schools as part of their education saying, where do I start? Right. Mm. Or, or kind of like, where do I even begin? And I think it's not with sentences like this. Um, Nez Perce is eagerly gathered to learn until Henry Spaulding began whipping Indians for what he considered unchristian behavior. He was nearly driven away a number of times. And I think where this peek into the past hits um, probably a realistic note is like you're saying, there's this intrigue, right? There's this trying to bridge and trying to understand. But I think we should almost never assume that people were lining up to be lectured at by like a cranky old white guy. Yeah. I mean, in many cases, they were actively opposed to it. I know of another situation where uh, an anthropologist came to a tribal area and he wanted to copy one of their sacred texts. And he was left alone in the room with a document. He started just making a hand copy without permission. And somebody came back in and confronted him and said, well, you have to leave right now. Like you have to leave your copies. And he writes about this as if he was the affronted party here as someone who is like air quotes, trying to preserve a record of this tribal language. And these kind of encounters, I think, are taken as a, a given or the default or have so shaped descriptions of collections, as you're noting, or histories of uh, initial encounters. And I think there are a lot of people engaged in trying to kind of reframe a lot of that work and a lot of those received narratives. I'll just also recommend if you're taking a deep dive into the peak into the past, it's mentioned that a lot of the discussions between Nez Perce leaders and uh, members of the U.S. government are actually happening right during the Civil War. So this actually takes us kind of right into Addie's timeline. We learn in May 1863, the government offered another treaty to Nez Perce chiefs, promising them money, schools, etc., this is the treaty that tore the Nez Perce people apart. And thinking about this as halfway through the Civil War, I just want to recommend The Three-Cornered War by Megan Kate Nelson, which puts 
this kind of event in a larger context, which is why is the United States government at the same time that they are creating land-grant institutions, like why is the United States government constantly grabbing up land for federal purposes and engaging in these kinds of deceptive treaty-making practices? It's obviously all part of a union strategy. So I think like that kind of Mm. context is important. Um, And it's interesting to see like, they are trying to do the most into this peak into the past Hmm. and the least. Yeah. I was going to say most and least this was, you know, not a great end to this series. I'll just say that. No, we, we end with learning that it's soldiers who chase away the Nez Perce. Um, they say through Yellowstone national park and over the Missouri river. And to your earlier point, it was not through Yellowstone national park. It was through their homeland, which then the federal government took over. There's similar language that you see at a lot of these places. They were not chased through a park. They were chased through where they were living and forced out. And it's like just that change of language. Like, and then this notion that Kaya is like, I picture Kaya almost like, you know, white women in commercials eating salads. And she's like, oh, magpie. (laughs) That's not the Kaya journey. No. And I think, you know, the last thing she'd want to do is celebrate the, you know, use of her people's ancestral lands as a national park to boost up, you know, a nation of which he wouldn't feel a part. So, you know, and it does relate to a lot of recent movements or calls by indigenous activists to reclaim national parks um, in the ancestral lands that they're located on. So, I mean, it is part of a current conversation. So I actually want like to imagine her being part of those groups. Um, There was an article in the Atlantic in the last issue for those interested about just this movement and topic. So I kind of like to see her being part of that conversation, not being someone who's boosting up uncritically the description of her ancestral lands as another nation's pet project. I'll also share on our website because I think this is the kind of Kaya energy we would see. It's an interview with a woman from a few years back who is Nez Perce, and she talks about unpacking her grandfather's trunk from a boarding school. And there's a doll that's extremely similar to the one that we're presented with in this book, but it also includes his first person account and kind of her reckoning with what this trunk means for her family and the way that a lot of the story that they're able to tell in this book is shaped by the fact that a lot of people didn't survive these moments of violence, right? So to kind of just magically place Kaya in our present is to really deny the fact that a lot of people didn't make it. A lot of people's ancestors were killed or those generations were cut off. So I think we don't want to imagine Kaya with like the magpie landing on her shoulder like Snow White because we have real people who are telling us their stories and are saying, actually, like, here's all these things I didn't know because of what happened to my family. Right. And I also, I think there's something about placing her in this distant past that not only allows Janet Shaw and others to sidestep the discomfort of having to describe the brutality of white encounter. 
I mean, I think we've read some notes from members of the Nez Perce who consulted who also were in favor of this um, chronological choice because to them it allowed the celebration of purely just a focus on Nez Perce culture without white influence. But at the same time, I think putting it in the past also allows American Girl to not have to address challenges of an indigenous girl's life today. Um, so, you know, we've, we, we've all, you can read a lot about this, but, you know, that would be a really different story. And rather than make white readers uncomfortable, I think maybe they just chose to do this instead. So it's worth kind of thinking about that too. I want to quote reviewer Granine who says, why did they make Kaya escape a wildfire? I mean, great question. Others were deeply divided. One word reviews, intense disappointment. We're all over the map here, folks. But we, you know, we made it to the end with Kaya. I'm very glad that we read her series. And we have a slew of things that we are in the process of lining up because we want you to hear other perspectives on the series beyond ours, as always. And we think and we hope that sometimes those are actually your favorite episodes on the books. Yeah, totally. I'm really looking forward to those myself. It's always great to kind of get other perspectives and, you know, build on what the books give us as a starting place. Mary, where are we headed next in Patreon land, if I may? You know, it's a really exciting time. I mean, talk about a, a tone shift, like to on the pit on the Patreon, we're exploring another mysterious woman in American history, a woman who is an icon, her work and her life or have elided in my mind. I've gone to CVS many times seeking out her wares. I don't have to go to the Met. I just have to go to CVS. The woman, the myth, the mystery, Lisa Frank, we will be taking on in our July Patreon. Very exciting. Yes, we are doing a kind of one-two eccentric woman series of from the mix-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler and then rapidly moving on to Lisa Frank. Very, very exciting. So please join us there in our Discord. It is a very exciting place to be. If you join the Patreon, you get access to our Discord community where we all chat about all kinds of things and we make channels reflecting interests that you know speak to members of the group. We have Total Request Hive, a music channel where people talk about what they're listening to. We just had someone in the past week request a channel for librarians, a channel for educators. Someone else requested a channel for gay listeners and gave me a title, Gay G, so now that's there. Um, you can find all kinds of stuff there. We have a book club going, a, a group of people share what they're reading. It's a really, I love it. I'm on there all the time. So if people want to get that started and they want to find you, where should they do that? You can go to patreon.com slash American Girls Pod, or you can go to our website, www.americangirlspod.com, and there's a link to our Patreon right there. If you want to find me to chat, you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. Now, Allison, if someone has fierce feedback, questions, their own <laughs> one word reviews for the Kaya series, where might they reach you? So I'm on Goodreads at Allison Horrocks. I'm Allison Horrocks on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow us at A Girls Pod on Twitter. You can look for us at American Girls Podcast on Instagram. And we also have a tea Public store, which has really wonderful designs by listeners and by designers. We definitely want you to check that out. Very exciting. Well, thank you so much for listening, everyone. We do so appreciate all of you in this community that we are creating together, and we'll see you on our next episode. Mm-hmm.